good morning, everyone. This is the long-awaited crossover episode of Mentally Unscripted and Mental Supermodels. You guys all demanded it, and now we're giving it to you, the crossover of the century. And I'm going to start off here with a quick story. So when I worked with the federal government, my job was to investigate HIPAA complaints. And for you folks who don't know, HIPAA is the Health Information Privacy Act. And among other things, HIPAA requires that medical providers and insurance companies give you access to your medical records. Uh, So believe it or not, most of the HIPAA complaints that I looked at and had to investigate had to do with medical records. Either the doctor wasn't giving the medical records to the patient or the patient for some reason thought the medical records were incomplete or that the doctor had altered them in some way. And believe it or not, well, I I guess understandably so, this really upset people. Um, They felt like their doctor insurance company or whatever authority that they felt like they should be able to trust was withholding information from them and unwilling to share with them information about their medical history. And it always struck me as crazy that we don't control our own medical records and that we don't have the ability to update our own medical records after we see a provider with our own thoughts um, and to try to maybe correct Uh, any issues or misunderstandings that the doctor maybe had. Um, And so if we could do that, right, how many headaches would that have eliminated? I mean, basically it would have eliminated my job probably because we wouldn't have had all the complaints about the medical records, but it would also have eliminated a lot of the headaches and the upset feelings that the patients were feeling if the patient could control their own medical records. And it would also help to hold doctors accountable because the doctors would have to make sure the medical records were complete. So that brings me to today's topic. So, We were talking, the four of us, and Myron came up with a pretty brilliant observation, I think. And it's this, that the 20th century technologies, a lot of the technology growth that we saw when we were kids were inherently centralizing technologies. 21st century technologies, however, are more decentralizing. We're starting to see the the atomization of uh, some of those centralizing uh, uh, technologies and and shifts that we saw back when we were kids. So in this podcast, uh, we want to explore this idea of decentralization, and we want to try to find some answers to uh, some important questions. Number one, what is decentralization? Number two, will we continue to move toward decentralization? And number three, if we do, what will that decentralized future look like? Most importantly, and this is number four, most importantly, what are the factors holding us back from moving towards decentralization? And number five, what can we do to drive mass adoption of decentralization. So before we get into that, I just want to one quick note, and I guess maybe this is the attorney in me, but I have to cover all the bases. Um, Any discussion of decentralization, it's going to cover a huge amount of ground because we're not just talking technology. Technology enables a lot of the decentralization, but there's decentralization in all kinds of areas. So we're not just talking finance and uh, social media, right? We're talking manufacturing, uh, all kinds of manufacturing um, in, in a lot of other areas. 
So we want to acknowledge that we understand that politics plays a big role in the future of decentralization. Uh, but for this discussion, we're, we don't want to talk about politics because that's not the area that really has us interested in this. So we understand that regulations will be a factor, um, but we want to focus more on the technical and social aspects of decentralization because we think those are more important and just, frankly, more interesting. So with that, I am going to quickly welcome, we've got Myron Weber, we've got Jeremy Thomas from Mental Supermodels, and then we've got Paul and myself from uh, Mentally Unscripted, and we are going to dive into this. So... Paul, since you're you're on the left side of my screen here, I'm just going to start with you. Um, what do you think about this thesis? Well, now let's start off here. What do, when you, we say decentralization, what do you think of? What what would be your definition of decentralization? You know, I, I appreciate the question, and and now I find myself a little flat-footed because I should come here with a perfect, pristine description of it. But I, I often think of it conceptually, right? This this concept of the a network like the internet, which is comprised of multiple nodes running uh, packets of information from one to the next. And, and that gives you the ability to share and grow differently because you are not relying on a central arbiter that has to approve all the information. You're just able to add into this. So that's, a, that's a, an aspect or a property that we oftentimes talk about in decentralization, sort of this permissionless ability to connect and interact. But I think fundamentally when I think about decentralization is is a concept that looks something like the internet. It's the ability to have um, the information not at a central point of failure, but spread out to multiple parties or actors within a network. They're all contributing towards different ends. Um, and that, that gives it certain um, characteristics that are favorable. So, so something that I, I, I point out, which I think many people understand, the, the internet was developed as a way to have a backup, have redundancy, to not have uh, a central point of failure, to spread out that risk, and to have the, the resiliency and the redundancy that you would need in case of an attack. Uh, they weren't looking at some of the other properties that you may get, such as uh, permissionless um, access and, and uh you know, the, the ability to, to share information without a central authority. So it, it really, um, if, if I take all that and try and give it into definition, it's, it is, it's, it's a group of actors um, sort of operating in some kind of choreographed way, but without a, a centralized authority. That's sort of the way I think about decentralization. I don't think that was a great definition. And, and maybe, maybe Myron, uh, who I know has, has, has thought a lot about this, can do a better job of, of answering that. I'll give it a shot. Uh, so uh, when I think about it, and, and anyone who's listened to uh, Mental Supermodels knows that Jeremy and I talk a lot about making distinctions as an important part of developing mental models. And so let me make a few distinctions around uh, the way we can look at decentralization. What is being decentralized, I think, is an important starting point. The the technological trend that we uh, that we talked about, and I think that that Scott laid it out really well in the introduction, but I'll just I'll just call back to that, right? That the industrial revolution technology was inherently centralized, uh, centralizing because it was about economies of scale, geographically bringing people and capital and manufacturing processes all together to get the economies of scale because you didn't have um, you didn't have the communication to do things over wide areas and so forth. 
So now with the you know the computing technology, the telecommunications technology, and all of these things that are enabling decentralization, here are I think the aspects, the facets of it that we could think about. There's geographic decentralization of people and the ability to communicate, the ability uh, to transport goods, uh, the ability to work from home. In all of these things, allow people to be more geographically distributed. Um, now, do we really see that? Well, some. I mean, obviously, there are still big cities, uh, but but you know, it's a it's a trend at least that we can can talk about. Uh, the decentralization of uh, of capital, uh, and that often capital follows the people, right? So so the the physical goods, uh, the things that are used to make things and so forth, follows people, but also. One aspect of capital that we often think about is money, right? Money very centralized in banks. It went from bars of gold in you know Fort Knox, which allegedly are still there, but uh, uh, obviously that's not what we think of as money today. It's it's the you know money that's printed by uh, by the uh, issued by the government and held in banks. So uh, now we have cryptocurrencies that have a decentralizing. Uh, effect on on money. Uh, also, I think the decentralization of decision making is an aspect worth thinking about, and that's the decentralization of of decision making at a governmental level. Um, potentially, that, I mean that again, we're not getting into the politics of it, but just culturally and institutionally, does a decentralizing trend have an impact on government institutions, but also then? non-governmental institutions? Will companies continue to get bigger and bigger and have more decisions centralized, or will they decentralize and have more individual decision-making outside of, of those central institutions? And I, I honestly don't know the answers to all those things and and think it's worth exploring. So I kind of originally came up with the with the thesis about the, the technologies and potentially social trends driving toward decentralization, but hoping that you guys can help test that thesis, and then we can get into uh, both the the sort of objective way of looking at it not not is it good or is it bad, but just is it happening and and why and where and how. But then I I do think that we can talk about you know what are the impacts and and the ways that people need to think about and prepare for decentralization if in fact it is going to be an ongoing trend. All right, Jeremy, those are some pretty good definitions. You got anything to add? The pressure's on. <laughs> I can never top Myron, but uh, but but I will give my perspective. And I think the good thing here is that we all have different perspectives of what you know decentralization is. And um, my view here is that fundamentally, I believe uh, that we're raised in a world uh, of hierarchical thinking which leads to a fear of losing control at the top and losing security at the, the middle and the bottom of this pyramid. Uh, so to me, decentralization is the actions and the results of shifting that thinking, which effectively removes barriers and enables opportunities uh, that puts more ownership and responsibility, but more ownership into the hands of individuals and, you know, I believe ultimately results in stronger communities and better products, better services. So, uh, you know, my 
one of my big focuses is on the cryptocurrency aspect of decentralization. And I believe that community is a big part uh, that's, that's driving that. People talk about the network effect that really drives the adoption of certain blockchains and cryptocurrencies. And, um, you know, I really believe in, you know, the, the social trends that are driving these communities and these network effects that are, you know, in turn driving the adoption of, of blockchain and, and crypto. Excellent. Yeah, I think those are all really good definitions and insights. And to just go back to my quick, my short story at the beginning about the medical records, you know, Myron, you talked about the decentralization of uh, decision making. And um, I think that is decision making and responsibility. Um, if you are decentralizing your medical records, meaning the doctors and insurance companies are no longer responsible for them, but you are, they're decentralized in that aspect, you're now taking responsibility for your own medical records and ho hopefully more responsibility for decision making in your own healthcare. And it's also, to your point, Jeremy, shifting control away from the doctors and the insurance companies and giving control back to the patient. So the patient can now manage those records and, again, will hopefully uh, have more responsibility over their own health care. The doctor isn't just some authority that you're going to and you're doing everything they tell you. Um, so that's that's my vision of at least that aspect of it. So I, I feel good that I think I my thinking was right after hearing you three. I think I was on to something. So, yeah, score point for me. <laughs> um, so, Jeremy, what do you think about this idea? Uh, the central thesis here that we had centralizing technologies in the 20th century and that we're moving in the 21st century, moving more towards decentralizing technologies. Is that something that is really happening or is it just something that has the appearance of happening because so much of the world is being driven by the internet internet now? I, I think it's really happening. I think, I think we're, we're in this maturity curve where it's, it's happening. People are afraid of it. Because you do, there is this a couple of you know perceptions. One that it's a, it's a radical thing to you know th that you're moving into the wild west. You know we were in the wild west. We moved into more of a centralized, conforming world, and now we're moving into the wild west again with you know decentralization. And uh, you know I think one one aspect is to not be afraid of this decentralization but to recognize that there is value in it. I think that's where we are right now is we're, we're trying to, we're understanding what the value is. There's certainly pros and cons and risks and benefits, but I think trying to understand the value of decentralization so that, um, so that you're comfortable taking control of, you know, of your own financial, uh, financial aspect or assets. You know, there's, there's different angles there, but I think there's a, a, a fear that people are, are trying to, understand right now. Excellent. And Paul, let me go over to you for this next question. Mm -hmm. um, if we're, if decentralization is diffusing authority and responsibility, pushing it down to the lower levels, back into the hands of the people, um, do you think that that's going to have a positive or negative effect on our view, views of virtue and morality? <laughs> great, great question. How how that manifests itself in society is a really interesting uh, unknown 
uh, where where we are today. I mean, if, if I peel this back one one layer, and I was thinking about the question of are we going to continue to move towards decentralization, then it was the, I had this other thought in my head. Well, how are we seeing this play out today? What what are indicators that we can look at to say are we seeing the growth of decentralized? And there there's a couple of metrics that come to mind, right? I think about the the growth of individualism in terms of products. Products can be highly individualized um, from sneakers that can be marked directly just to you to uh, settings on your phone, which are just your own preferences. And then you, you, you look at other uh, ways in which, you know, you see the advertising even like get, get, get something just for you. All, always personalized, which to me is, is could, could be looked at as, as a starting point for this idea that we're, we're looking at decentralization, sort of this, this individual has, has this power. But of course, those, those examples still rely on a centralized authority, right? Nike being a shoe manufacturer, McDonald's being, or Burger King being a, a burger. But then what do, we, what do we also see at this time is we see other types of technologies that are starting to emerge and, be, and offer the promise of being able to create products. So you, like something like a 3D printer, maybe a food printer that's able to produce food that's individual for you. And maybe it's not just based on preferences, it's based on your health profile and what you should be consuming for your metabolic health. Well, those are just interesting starting points, right? So I'm seeing a movement to say there's the individual matters and we want to hit their preferences, not just the collective. I'm starting to see technologies that can start to enable that. And then I'm also seeing something like the growth of these initial distributed uh, decentralized technologies like in the cryptocurrency market where if you just track the growth of the of the market cap you can see that there is there's movement there's there's growth there so you, i think you're seeing signals that suggest that we're moving in those directions and one of the ones which it will i think comes back to your question of morality is how do we communicate and there's so much discussion in in 2021 and obviously going back years about the the role of our social media networks that enable an individual to have communication with individuals they don't know, to have a megaphone, if you will, they, they've enabled the individual. And with that, we're seeing the distribution of information change from centralized characters on standard media to decentralized um, sharing of information, sort of the, the mass gossip syndrome, if you will. We're able to gossip in, in ways that used to only be connected to our, our physical network that has now expanded out. and we should ask ourselves uh, what's happening to our morality. How, how are we seeing ourselves communicate about our morality, about our, our vision and hope and how we can, uh, we inject our subjective views of what is right and wrong. Well, we see a growing push by some to silence others who seem to go against what they view as correct, right, morally justified. Uh, we see others appealing to authority to say, not only do we want to cancel these people by having the masses defund them, but we would prefer these other men with guns to have a role in trying to push that down. That sounds a lot like it runs counter to the principles that we have laid out in, in a document like the Constitution, where we talk about the, the First Amendment and the ability to have free speech. So I, I think it's unclear exactly what the ramifications are for decentralization and how we we uh, what it will mean for our morality. I think it's it's possible, and I like to believe that our uh, the best aspects of what we see as a moral society and as moral individuals can be exemplified and put into a decentralized architecture. 
and that it's superior to the centralized world of today, um, it, it's unclear to me exactly how that happens. If I'm if I'm being honest, the early inclinations or the early examples that we have, I think are frustrating to almost everybody. I, I don't know anybody who would say, I love the discussions we have on Twitter and the sniping and the fact that we have people constantly talking about cancel culture. And and you could, always, of course, argue that my description and what I'm observing isn't, isn't 100% of the picture. But I think our early indications, which which also coincides with, with my view of the digital self and how we're dealing with a, a disruption between our physical and digital world where we start to have a, a an avatar that describes us much differently than the physical world, which has its own ramifications. We're dealing with all that at once. And so um, I, I don't know. I don't know what the morality looks like. I, I want to think that it's going to be better. I want to think that enabling individuals um, around the world to express themselves in a morally, uh, in their own morality, we'll, we'll see us come together in, in a better way. Maybe that's just wishful thinking. I think one thing, if I could add add to what you're saying there, uh, because one thing that I actually find fascinating uh, in, in relation to the, the crypto world, one thing I find fascinating is the evolution of communities, because you mentioned you know, how we communicate uh, is a big part of this. And just seeing the evolution of communities that are growing out of decentralized finance and NFTs and crypto as a whole, uh, I believe that it's showing how decentralization starts out like the Wild West, which, you know, of course, anything that's disruptive starts out, you know, a little bit chaotic. But the communities that start forming out of the chaos, to me, have really been impressive. And three key channels of communication for this that's enabling this, of course, is Twitter, YouTube, and Discord, especially mm-hmm. Discord, yep. really. And you find that leaders with real alpha, with the real meaty content, rise up within these communities, and they're not self-appointed. They're recognized by the communities because of their contributions to the community. And I think that that's value that's been provided through decentralization to these communities that, that have allowed them to maybe build their own tribes, but it's around common interests. So, so if I'm understanding you correctly, you're shifting away from this concept of hierarchy and authority to value contribution and elevation at a community level. Yeah, exactly. Especially like self-appointed hierarchy, mm-hmm. I think is what we're, we're moving away from. So we're decentralizing it allowing leaders to to establish to become established within these communities um, without the hierarchy that's kind of driving it it's kind of being driven from the bottom up instead of from the top down yeah that's i think that's a a really good insight into um, how those how those models are coming together and and perhaps it's it's a it's a bright light to what the future could look like when we talk about what's the what's the better version of the future and, and what can we see from it where we're not focused on someone's title or the pedigree but more on their contributions okay myron did you have anything to add to that well i think it's really interesting actually i appreciated uh the points that that paul and and jeremy both made uh it, there is a real tension, I think, in what can happen with decentralization and its effect on on morality, because on the one hand, in general, when people have more responsibility, they behave more morally. 
Uh, of course, not always, but in general, I think that's true. On the other hand, as uh, as I think Paul pointed out really well, with the uh, the effects that we see on social media of people people being rude to someone online in a way that they would never be face to face, right? And so that's a real question: Are humans ready for uh, this decentralization in terms of how we interact with each other, how we culturally? Uh, uh, are affected by it or how we affect other people. I, I think that, that, uh, that is, um, yeah, that's going to be interesting to see. But on, on the other hand, even like right now, our social media, uh, is it's somewhat centralized, right? So we've got these major platforms that, that, uh, become the, the places where, Things are somewhat controlled by a central authority and everybody's on the same platform. Whereas Jeremy pointed out Discord. Discord is much more decentralized than Twitter, Facebook, or the other major social media platforms. And you find your tribe. And in general, people treat one another pretty civilly, unless it happens to be a Discord channel where it's okay. You know, it's a gamer channel and people are really <laughs> rude to each other because that's part of what they do. You're able to actually then in this more decentralized social media uh, environment, find the tribe that's at your level and it's not all going through the centralized platform. And so that'll be an interesting trend to see how that plays out. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, I, I'm not sure how social media how decentralizing social media is going to improve our virtue or morality. But I'm thinking something along the lines of um, let's say that at least right now in the U S a lot of help for the poor comes from the government. So let's say we dis decentralize that and we have churches and local charities step in, start take on more of that responsibility. People, in the communities will now have to start scrutinizing those charities more and they may become more engaged with um, people in the community who need assistance. And I'm thinking that could increase or improve our morality um, just by getting connecting people together a little better. Um, so that's going to be something interesting that it, something interesting to see, watch unfold in the future. Yeah. And the thought that there's a thought there that comes to mind, we talk about why, why decentralization? Why now? And I, I heard a quote some time ago, I'm not sure if it came from AZ 16 or, or some other venture capitalist, but technology that the, the history of technology is a constant story of expansion and contrites. Uh, now, now I'm getting it wrong, <laughs> but it's, it's sort of, it's, it's a growth where we're decentralizing and then centralizing and we're constantly going back almost like a heartbeat. Right. And you know, that's, that runs, it sounds at least a little bit contrary to our initial thesis, which is that the, the technologies of the 20th century were, were highly concentrating. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that's true, actually, because you look at the right time scale and you can probably see some of how these these elements play out. But are, are we looking, are we seeing a desire for some of this decentralization because society is feeling a desire to return to a closer network of culture? It's a part that's missing from us that even... You know, as we've moved into more of an urbanization environment, um, there's still desire. There's a, there's a lack of community there that people don't feel, and and so the the desire to see decentralization occur is because they they do want to feel those bonds again. 
um, in a way, you know, it's like, it's like, uh, I'm sure everyone here watches Hallmark as much as I do, but you know, <laughs> their, their product is this idyllic concept that somebody returns to a town that has a community and they're coming from a location that doesn't have a community. You don't, they're not selling that product to people out in the country. They're selling that to people that live in cities that are thinking about escapism, right? They want to return to this community. It's an idyllic view, right? And so, or if they're selling it to the people in the country, they're going to be, they want to be like, yeah, see, don't you see how much better it is to have community? I, I, I just wonder if that's another one of these mega trends that we're seeing of why there's, there's so much interest in this now uh, that could explain why, why this is happening. Good points. Yeah, I, I think there's there's barriers and transparency might be two of the the factors in this. You know, the the decentralization removes some barriers for people and increases the transparency for what they're involved in. And I, I don't know if that lends itself to morality improvement, but I think those are two key factors that that people are looking for. I think that's really interesting. And Paul, as you were talking, one of the things that that came to mind for me, and I hadn't really thought of in in this context before, is some of the social things beyond the technology that may contribute to these decentralization, centralization cycles. Uh, You know, you look back in history and, and it's, it's, dangerous to be too reductionistic about history and say the cause of something is a when actually there's a to z causes about everything (laughs) that happened but you know during um you know during the middle ages uh under the european feudal system where heredity caused land to continue to be chopped up more and more and more but then would go to the to the eldest depending on on which uh you know which uh country or which uh, cultural setting it was under, it would either go to the eldest, well, then what happens to the rest of the kids? Or it gets divided among the kids and it gets smaller and smaller. And suddenly you've got to look for a new frontier. You've got to decentralize and go find more land. Hey, let's, you know, let's send them off to fight the Crusades. Hey, we're going to start exploring and look for, look for new worlds, these kinds of things. And right now, you know, the world's been explored right there's there's no new land to go decentralized to in a in a really broad macro sense even though people can move out of the cities to rural areas there's no place new to go but technologically there are all kinds of new things new ways that people can uh maybe scratch that itch to say i want to you know uh, i want to explore. I want to be the pioneer. I want to go look for a frontier. I don't know if that makes any sense. I hadn't really thought it through. It just came to mind as Paul was talking. Well, I think uh, Elon Musk is going to have us on Mars by 2030, right? So I think there's <laughs> going to be a lot of, a lot of ex- land to expand to. Um, so let's, let's move on from the question of morality. And Myron, I want to push back a little bit on you. When it, when we first started discussing this, you mentioned that centralizing technologies were a benefit because they created economies of scale. So if we decentralize, well, so for the folks out there who aren't economics majors, um, economies of scale means that um, that companies, if they can expand, say, their manu- their production base, their manufacturing base, then it becomes cheaper for each product that they produce. So the bigger the company gets, the more they can expand, the, the, the lower the cost of them for producing each widget, essentially, is what an economy of scale is. So if we move away from centralization to decentralization, does that destroy the cost gains that we get from 
economies of scale? And if not, and if it doesn't, then why is that? I would say it partially does, but those things are mitigated by other factors, in my opinion. And I haven't studied it in detail, but just my impression is that because uh, logistics and transportation have improved so dramatically over the last century, that uh, reduces some of the benefits of economies of scale and also the the nature of uh, products today um, is, I mean, so there certainly are things where you need a big factory to, to build it. You can't, we don't have 3D printed um, cars yet, right? <laughs> but, uh, but we, you know, we have, you know, the cell phone, right? Now is, is a computer and a communication device and a entertainment device. And it, you know, fits in our pocket. So the, just the physical size of things is smaller. And so some of those economies of scale uh, may be mitigated by that. And also, I think the other mitigating factor is that centralization creates risks, right? And we see that with supply chain disruptions. Uh, we see that with geopolitically where, you know, China or other countries control uh, a, a massive amount of the production of certain goods. So I think that that the uh, the risks that are created by centralization uh, also mitigate that somewhat. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and going back to my medical records example, if your doctor is the one who has all your medical records and the doctor won't give you the give you access to them or won't, or they experience a, uh, a system failure that causes data loss and your records disappear. You're, you're just SOL. Um, whereas in a more decentralized, um, system, if you're, when you have control of the records, you can back them up yourself. If you're storing them on the blockchain, there's going to obviously be a backup that way so that the, the dis- decentralized model will build more redundancy into the system. Um, so that was a good point. So yeah, I just want to piggyback on that a little bit. I think a, an interesting question is looking about where do you need concentrations of capital going forward, right? Um, and I, I keep on returning to my view of what's happening with this digital self, because to me, as we create this virtualization of humanity, which is, you know, on the simplistic level, it's me playing Mario in a, in a video game. In a more sophisticated way, it's me having an avatar and, and existing in a virtual world for several hours and exploring that. And then it just layers on, it layers itself on. So to the end point where I, I asked my wife if she wants to go to, to Paris tonight and we put on headsets and we have haptic suits and we've got uh, something maybe that connects to our brain, which can um, create different sensations from the sense of eating, uh, the sense of smelling, et cetera. Now we've, we're able to travel to Paris for the night. We have a beautiful meal sitting somewhere near the, near the uh, Eiffel Tower, and it all seems real to us, right? And think about all where, where the capital needs to be for that to happen, right? You can have, with as, as software continues to build out, you have a, a small set of developers that are able to write this specific script. They've got capital is needed maybe on the virtual, um, on, and some of the servers, right. That are needing to, to run some of the software, but not in the creation of the software. Maybe you need some of the capital in the headset. Uh, maybe you need some of the capital concentrated in, in other aspects of that, uh, maybe the haptic suit, but then 
maybe you have the ability to distribute some of that differently as well. Differently, I would argue, and, and or this it appears to me, than, than building a railroad system, which is entirely physical, which requires mass amounts of capital uh, to be put not just in year one, but over an extended period of time. The virtual just has a different dynamic to it that we're still grappling with. And so I, I, I do agree that we, we did so much building in the 20th century that was a physical world that as we start to move into the 21st and we, we move to more distrib- distributed, distributed technologies, but also a virtualized component of it, then we, we just have a different dynamic of what is actually needed. And you can shift some of the importance to the, the consumption side of it, which is the, those experiences that I mentioned, like, like sitting uh, a virtual experience next to the Eiffel Tower um, versus the creation of all the other infrastructure around you from, from telecom or railroads or uh, buildings. So I, I think that's a that's an important factor to why there's a difference. Okay. Does anybody have anything to add to that? If not, we'll move on to the uh, next section where we're going to unleash our imaginations and imagine a, the radical future of decentralization. So uh, before we do that, does anybody have anything to add to what Paul just said? Nope. Okay. So, uh, Myron, this was your idea, so we'll start off with you. <laughs> uh, lay it on us. What what it is your radical future of a decent or radical vision, excuse me, of a decentralized future. Um, and you can either keep it confined to one particular area or just give us what the entire universe will look like. It's up to you. All right. Well, uh, let me just try to hit on a few areas and I'm sure you guys will, will fill in the gaps uh, of what I miss. But when I think of the, the most radical thing, it really will be the decentralization of what we now think of as the as nation states. And there will be hierarchy, uh, there will be authority in the world. What form that will take, what it'll look like, I don't know. But you know, even right now with as we've mentioned a couple times, 3D printing, um, uh, people can 3D print guns. I've seen it on YouTube and um, you know, for for some time, the military technology, right? The 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 controlling military technology has been aircraft carriers, right? Put them out on the ocean, sail them around with with uh, jets that, and and really, you can kind of rule the world that way. Well, we're getting close to a point where uh, it's not just you know hypersonic missiles, but actually a swarm of drones, you know, would be able to take out uh, these. Kings of the seas, right? And and they would be vulnerable. And at some point, I don't know what what the technology would be, but you got to just think: at some point, a technology will be developed that will render nuclear weapons useless as the other controlling military technology. And and then then what? So that's one part of the radical decentralized vision that I think is pretty interesting. The other one is the currency, the the cryptocurrency. And, you know, we talk about, and, and I know, uh, Scott, your example of the medical records and controlling your own medical records, but similarly, uh, with cryptocurrency, you've got control of your own keys, but that's also risky, right? Because what if you lose your keys? What if you lose your medical records? What if you lose your money because you you lost the key? So what does that look like in a decentralized world? In, in the... Uh, 
in the Bitcoin and, and Lightning Network uh, communities, I've heard people talk about Uncle Jim. I don't know who first came up with this, if it was someone who had an actual Uncle Jim or where it came from, but the idea that every family, every extended family would have an Uncle Jim who's the technology guy and sort of manages the the Bitcoin and Lightning server for the family. And so basically every family has their own bank and it's run by Uncle Jim. And, you know, there are ways to recover passwords. So you've got a person you're connected to directly. It's it's not every person for themselves. It's, I, you know, Jeremy talked about finding your tribe. So maybe your extended family or some other tribe and ways that in, in more localized uh, methods, people come together to self-control those things, but not necessarily every person for themselves. So, uh, you know, I guess I'll, I'll stop there. I probably have more I can say, but I want to know what you guys have to say about the radical vision. Yeah. Yeah. That one thing that you were talking about, about the, the family lightning node, um, this concept of yield farming, which I just discovered uh, when I was doing research for this podcast, this idea that people will be able to, strangers will be able to just loan crypto to each other and make money by charging interest on it. And that would effectively eliminate the middleman. It'll eliminate the banks. And I would assume circumvent government regulations um, surrounding lending. And it would just allow two people to come together and, uh, voluntarily enter into a contract, uh, the terms of which would pretty much just be individualized. It could potentially differ from contract to contract. Um, So that that idea of families or communities essentially being their own banks, I think, is is really interesting. That's something I'm looking forward to. Um, Jeremy, what do you think? What's your radical future vision? (laughs) Yeah, well, my, you know, my background, most of my career has has been in financial services, a lot on the technology side, but I've spent most of my career in financial services one way or another. And so I come at this from that perspective. Uh, and again, especially uh, as it relates to crypto and in finance, traditionally, it's been difficult for the average Joe to get in on, uh, to get in early on drops like like initial public offerings and venture capital type of startup investing. And I'm, I'm simplifying this a little bit, but typically you have to be an accredited investor. You know, you, you already have to have millions of dollars or work for a specific company or whatever the restrictions are. Um, or like you were talking about, you, you know, regarding yield farming, you know, regarding getting a loan, earning more yield on your deposits, cutting out the middleman not only enables greater access and opportunities for more people, it drives more uh, crowdsourced products, meaning that the broader group of people can get their voices heard, which a decentralized market would re- you know can respond to with better products and services. And you know, I think that you know yield farming is yield farming and staking is one way to, to look at this uh, decentralized finance as a way that, and it's globalized too, that's another big point here, is that we're not just talking about, you know, within a nation, within a country. Uh, this, this decentralization of, of finance opens up everything globally. Now, you know, there are certain regulatory restrictions that, that are being applied, but if we just generalize this, um, is, there are global opportunities 
that are opening up to cut out the middlemen that do enable me as an individual to loan my my money out so that I can earn more yield on it and I have control over where I loan it to, who I loan it to, uh, more so than just going and depositing into a bank and now they have control over who it goes to and how much they're earning on it. So a quick question, just as a thought experiment, do you think if we had a more decentralized financial system that something like the 2008 financial crisis uh, would have not happened? Um, I'm thinking if if massive amounts of capital were not concentrated in these banks and investment banks, then they wouldn't have been able to take all the risky bets on these um, real estate derivatives or these these mortgage derivatives. Um, so then we wouldn't have had the those things all go sour all at the same time and this implosion of the economy. Yeah, I think a couple of things. One, you have more transparency with the decentralized finance so you can better see what's going on. In the 2008 financial crisis, there was a lot of closed door, backroom things happening, and these derivatives were new and complex, and nobody had any idea that they were even going on, except for a handful of people even knew that they were creating these these weapons of mass destruction financially. Uh, I think right. I think now people understand that better. Will could that be eliminated? I, I don't know that, that that could completely be eliminated with decentralized finance because you still have people that are seeking out risky products. You still have high leverage and you have exchanges that are enabling leverage trading and synthetic assets and derivatives that are risky. One of the downsides is that th- these risky uh, like financial instruments are now more easily available to individuals, whereas in the past, they weren't easily available to individuals. So I think this comes back to some responsibility, but I think that there's more transparency and information and awareness now that decentralization is uh, is applying that, you know, won't completely eliminate uh, some of the, you know, some of the destruction that could happen with, with derivatives and leverage trading but I think makes it more, uh, makes people more aware of what's going on, at least. All right, Paul, do you have anything to add or want to give us your, your radical future vision? Uh, well, the idea that comes to mind when we're talking about radical is, is something that makes people feel very uncomfortable, but can actually feel very right when it's actually happening. So the idea of a a reorganization of the nation state is something that most people will feel very uncomfortable with because of the questions that come up. What is my nation now? Where is my culture in that new world? What does, uh, how do we defend ourselves? How do we organize with others that share our beliefs? And yet you could also look at that the the opposite way, right? If, if the nation state arose um, as a collection of people to defend, you know, collect uh, some, some amount of progress, right, to, to based on their belief system to, to develop progress and then to defend it against other people that share different beliefs. Might it be that the decentralized radical view makes it very costly to the point of not wanting to try and destroy other people's beliefs, 
right? That the, you know, Myron, you mentioned the idea of a ship that can be taken down by a swarm of drones. You, you could also then go even further than that and think about the fact that a single hacker could inject a piece of code into any kind of physical object that has a controller on it and shut it down for an extended period of time. This could be used by the military, but what if what if those hackers are trying to disrupt all military operations as a vote for peace, right? You, th- that ends up being uh, a possibility. And then you also could think about how we, we look at communities that are geographically distant from us, but share our values. And, and so an example of that may be when we look at farmers that, exi- that are today living in countries that are uh, surrounded by drug cartels that inflict a huge amount of pain? And how do we give resources to those farmers so that they can live without that incursion? So perhaps, you know, today we know it's an asymmetric uh, situation where the drug cartels have significant power and resources because of the product that they sell relative to the um, to the farmers who, who have very little and they have no political real um, capability in those in those countries. You could see where if people don't think about the borders, they could be focused on how do we get the resources to those people? Perhaps you're sending a an army of drones to those people to disrupt the operations of the cartel, right? And that's coming from a global consortium. It doesn't have to come from the UN, which has different considerations and clearly has been ineffective to date. It's coming from people that are rising up against something that seems to be unjust. So I think a radical view of the future can be extremely bright as we solve some of the problems that we have today. And the opposite is also true. Another radical view of that is that it looks in many ways similar to how you see it today, but what's under the hood is very different. And we we talked about some of those examples before the call where uh, perhaps rather than having centralized technology companies developing software like Uber does, and then and then having to run a business around it, maybe a lot of that software just becomes a utility that sits on this decentralized web that's uncensored, that's available to all. And we are able to remove some of the middlemen that Jeremy talked about, and we're, we're, we're pushing more of the value to the end consumer and the, the end producer, right? So if, if you have the driver, they're, they're getting in the car, they're, they're, they're turning on their app, and they're able to set a price maybe because they're, they're, they have that permission to do that on top of this utility. They, they've decided how to, how to you know, join in on this, on this community that they, they see as valuable, and um, they have more options. And they also receive a bigger, bigger cut because the, the credit card person that's in, the, that's in the middle that takes a cut, the technology company that's in the middle that takes a cut, that yes, they, I would argue Uber has provided a tremendous service to date. Um, but you could also say now that we have the know-how of how this operates, it can move more into an email type of situation where the um, the service is is effectively free somehow. And I, and I know that's not exactly right. It's not a perfect analogy because of how they fund some of that operation. But you can have different, very simple changes in the underlying infrastructure that's decentralized that allows for new options, new new combinations of ideas that could really make for a future in which you know what I what I like to come down to is the positive side. We're, we're making progress. We're continuing to address the issues that we see, and we're able to do it more effectively, right? That could be that could be the most radical change in a decentralized world. People feel like no, no, no. We have to have this concentration of power to solve these massive problems. Perhaps the opposite is true. 
perhaps in the way that we decentralized authority decision-making and created into these different groups. Um, maybe they're working through a DAO, a, a distributed autonomous organization, which is a concept that's very common in the cryptocurrency space and discussed all the time. Maybe that's the solution that's going to figure out how do we deal with issues like um, questions about the climate, uh, questions about how do we have energy, questions about how we have clean water, questions about how to give resources to people that are without. So I, that to me would be the most radical idea is is a, is a total change in how we see the, the, the true way, the most effective way to, to create progress. Okay. Anyone else have a... Uh... Any additional thoughts on their radical visions of the future? Well, I I think uh, based on what Paul was just saying, I'll I'll connect a couple dots here, right? So uh, again, ad admitting we don't know how things will will form, but thinking about possibilities, right? If if every extended family has the Uncle Jim who's operating the Lightning Network and the bank, uh, you know, you're instead of your mobile phone being connected to these major centralized companies like Uber, Facebook, all of, yes, they're providing a service, but they're also collecting your data and they're tracking you and all of these things. Your phone's just going to connect to a server that Uncle Jim set up and Uncle Jim's server is going to be networked to some other families, uh, you know, Aunt Sally and some other families, <laughs> Uncle Bill, whatever. And you need a ride you're you're actually communicating with a network of people uh, that your family has relationships with, saying, "Hey, uh, uh, who can give me a ride?" and and it takes you know maybe some of the risk out because you're dealing with parties that you have a connection with, and there's some knowledge there. So uh, it's a way in which some of the things that we might think about. Well, you've got to have Uber to vet the drivers and make sure that they're you know that they're not. Uh, serial killers and, and so forth. Well, that, that centralization creates other problems along with the benefits it provides. And I'm not trying to, to be utopian here and say that decentralization solves all problems and all centralization is bad. They're pros and cons, but it was just interesting as, as you were talking about uh, Uber, uh, that occurred to me in, in the context of the whole uncle Jim, uh, idea <laughs> as well. I want so, to meet the Uncle Jim. Yeah, so we're moving away from the internet to the Uncle Jim net. Is that what? <laughs> is, that, is that the future? Okay. Uh, so, Paul, um, do you think this march towards decentralization is going to continue, and why or why not? Yeah, so I, I can probably lay it out in a few different cases. So the bullish case for this continue comes from people that are observing the pressure that's happening in the system right now. So what are what are some examples of that? Well, people point to censorship of language, of speech as one pressure that's being inflicted now, and that decentral decentralized networks that are censorship resistant allow you to have that speech, and so that that's going to push people into those areas. Another challenge that we're also seeing right now is uh, infrastructure that has centralized points of failure. And so it, not a week goes by that we don't have another example of infrastructure, some that we would consider highly critical, being exploited um, by a, some kind of bad actor. And th that's because there's a central point of failure that you can take out. Uh, ransomware attacks are a great example of this. And I think the one that's most relevant is that the, uh, the number one producer of candy corn in the country, something like 85% of all candy corn goes to this company. 
and they were attacked with a ransomware attack earlier in October. I mean, can you imagine all the kids, the disappointment, not only having to deal with supply chain issues from COVID, now they have to deal with the ransomware. I don't know. I mean, I it's think, just it's just wrong. I don't know. I think people would be happy to not have candy corn. That stuff's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, to each their own, I suppose. <laughs> um, so so we have those, those two forces uh, that, that come to mind. I think, so you've got the idea of resiliency, then we've got this idea of, of rights and principles that are being pushed. And then you have a third one that we've, we've talked about, Jeremy brought up, um, about the opportunity, the financial opportunities for people. So those pressures, I, I don't think are going to go away anytime soon. I think decentralization still looks like the right answer to those. And there's, there's many, many more. Those are the three that come to mind. So I think as, as people come face to face with those, they're going to continue to uh, look for new solutions and decentralization in, in some way, shape or form, be it in the crypto space, be it a new uh, software or technologies are going to continue to push people in that direction. That's my thesis. Okay. And Jeremy, you mentioned early on that uh, you've think that some people may be afraid of moving towards a decentralized system um, because of issues around control and, secu- and security. So uh, what can you say or what, what are your ideas to alleviate some of the fears that some people may have? Uh, yeah, I think if we're talking about like even how to to drive adoption to this, I think it does start with eliminating, you know, the, that fear of decentralization and realize that it's not about the radical extremist views that you have to you have to shift your mindset to understand that it's a journey that does start out a bit chaotic like anything that's disruptive but it does begin to settle down and i think that that's the period that we're going through right now and if you accept that that's what's happening and that we're on you know this maturity curve that's moving in the right direction and if you look out at what the end result looks like, you, you look at these use cases and the value that you could get out of this, the decentralization, then I think that you can start appreciating the journey that we're on. So, you know, I think so that's kind of my approach to this is to actually see it as a journey, whereas I think a lot of people just look at it as an extremist viewpoint and can't see that it's actually a process that we're going through. You know, they, they, they talk about all of the problems, you know, it's not easy to use, you know, you can, you have to keep, you have to main, manage your own private keys uh, and, and it's complicated and, and people can't figure it out. And there's all these regulatory problems that'll never get solved. I think that if you just accept the fact that it's a journey that we're going through that has value at the end of it, then that kind of sets your expectations and you can appreciate what's actually going on instead of just being afraid of it. You know, I, I want to piggyback on that because an idea came to mind. Someone who who, who has that fear, I, I, I can really empathize with that. I guess a question I would ask for them, what are your thoughts on people having solar power on top of their own home? Is that something that you think is, is, is good or negative or both? Um, I would imagine many people... Uh, can say, yeah, actually, it's it's kind of cool that you can have you you can create your own energy. Well, and, and you could have your own battery, and you could power your own home or your own home. And that's that is a that's a great example of decentralizing our our life, right? So perhaps when we speak to people about 
the concept of decentralization, we can do a better job of acknowledging their fear for good reason, because it's unknown, uh, giving them an example that maybe they could, they could you know, really get their arms around, and then giving them a bridge, a mental bridge to say, okay, well, you know, maybe, maybe this isn't as scary because by the way, right, there's, there's, there had, there has to be some fear with the energy, right? You, you've got, maybe you have critical machines at home, like, you know, for, for sleep apnea or something and the power goes out for seven days and you can't sleep right. Or, um, you know, you, you, you're just, you don't want to be without energy because you, you work from home. And if you don't have energy, now you're gonna have to travel somewhere or you're just, you're, you can't, you have to take a week off. I mean, there, there are risks and challenges to being that decentralized energy today that I think many people would think, well, those are, those will be solved in the future. We're, we're going to continue to build the technology. We're going to improve upon that. We're going to have better batteries. We're going to improve on the, on the photovoltaic cells and how they can absorb the sunlight. So say, well, that's, that's going to happen in these other areas that are, that are more challenging today. Yeah, and I think that uh, if people are more connected with what that value is, with the solar example, I think people can relate to the fact that maybe they get cheaper, they can lower their their energy costs, or you know, they can have fewer issues with power mm-hmm. if they're capturing their own their own source. So that might be more relatable. Um, you know, with with you know crypto, I think that. Not everybody can relate to it. I think it's being adopted by other countries that that can be more directly impacted by like decentralized finance right now. So they really do understand the value. And I think that in, until you um, until you can maybe be more directly connected with the value that's being provided, it becomes a little less um, you know it's it's you're, you're less to adopt it, less likely to adopt it until it really directly impacts you. And I think in the in the term in, in regarding decentralized finance, I don't pe- people I don't think everyone sees the value. Mm. So maybe so that part is an educational part because they're just used to the centralized finance world, and that's all that they know is available. So I think there's an education part that comes to it to understand that what the value could be. Then that starts kind of bridging that gap. You know, I think that's really interesting. A couple a couple points to draw out of that uh, using the the solar energy uh, example because I think it it is uh, really uh, illustrative of this the going back to the original thesis of 20th century technology versus 21st century technology uh, and and the fact that people tend to look at what we have now as normal right so the fear of what might happen out of decentralization is based on the fact that now is normal. But if you go back 150 years, um, everybody created the, their own energy. They burned wood, right? They, or they burned coal or kerosene or whatever method of producing their own energy they had. And so this idea that let's centralize all of the energy production for everybody into these power plants. That's an idea that's, you know, a little over a hundred years old and uh, it it doesn't have to be that way. And it has certain risks and it has certain environmental impacts. And so the idea that everybody could have their own solar panels on their house or other ways of producing their own energy, we're close to the technology for that to, to really be feasible and cost-effective, uh, not just in pockets, but really widespread or potentially anyway. Uh, and so I think 
I think it's a, a good example of why some of the fear is is really sort of a you know chronological myopia of saying now is normal and, and not realizing that a lot of this is just slow running experiments to say let's see if this works and maybe maybe some of these centralizing things worked really well for a period of time but that doesn't mean it has to always be that way. Well, that brings me to my next question. So there's going to be, I think of them as gatekeepers, these legacy companies, organizations, institutions out there who are going to, um, they're not going to, they're, they're going to get dragged into the decentralized world kicking and screaming for one reason or another. And I'm including in that everything from what, like Myron said, the centralized uh, power companies to, I'm even thinking of Twitter and Facebook. Um, and I mean, what kind of a world do we live on when we're calling Twitter and Facebook a legacy company? But um, <laughs> so, and, and also I was reading something recently where the, the infrastructure of the internet, the right down at its core, the hardware that makes it run is controlled by a small number of companies. And so that ultimately they could control if they wanted to, who gets access to the internet. Um, so how do you see these companies trying to control expansion into a decentralized world? And what can we do to um, overcome any resistance um, to that move? So I'll, I'll start by saying that uh, once they learn how to make money off of this is when they'll really begin to accept it. And I think that you see an example of that with Facebook right now. Uh, diving into the metaverse, they, they're diving into it like it's their idea to build this big metaverse that everyone can be a part of, when in reality, you have a lot of other companies that are doing this already. It's being adopted by people. But of course, Facebook is now looking to jump onto the bandwagon. And from a finance standpoint, once the banks learn how to make money off of it, which they're starting to do, they're going to they're going to custody your cryptos for you and they're going to charge for that. They're going to find ways to make money off of it. And I, I just I personally feel like that's been a part of the drag right now is that these centralized organizations are just they're like holding crypto back while they learn how to make money off of it. And I don't mean that from a negative way. I just mean that's how that's how things work. The centralized figures, initially they were afraid of losing control, but now they're just saying, well, let's figure out how to make money off of it. And they're going to offer services that support the ones that don't want to maintain their own private keys, don't want to take responsibility for, and it's not just responsibility. I mean, a lot of it's complicated. You know, I mean, not everybody knows how to install MetaMask and add Ethereum to it and bridge some over to Avalanche and use Trader Joe to exchange it for AVAX and deposit that into YieldYak in order to get, to do their yield farming. And where, where does Uncle Jim fit into that? <laughs> yeah. In this case, it's Joe. Joe. Uh, Joe. <laughs> but, you know, not everybody's going to want to do that, but a lot of people will. So... I think that the you know, centralized organizations, banks will learn how to do that and take advantage of some of this decentralization to do it on behalf. So instead of me as an individual earning, I don't know, 40% on my yield, maybe I can still earn 4% or 10% on my yield instead of 
you know, 0.2%, but the bank's going to make, going to take that other 20% that, you know, for, for handling it for you. And I think that they'll learn how to earn off of this decentralization, but it still enables those who want to go about it themselves, the, the capabilities of doing it. All right. Myron, what do you think? Well, definitely there will be institutional resistance to the decentralization. Uh, no, no question about it. Uh, and I, I guess my feeling is that it's not so much about us trying to do anything to overcome that. If the thesis that I put out is true, and I kind of think it is, but I, I'm not 100% sure, but if, if the thesis is true, that there are both technological and cultural factors that are driving toward decentralization, then, you know, resistance will be futile in, uh, over the long term. Now, will it be completely futile? No, I don't think the entire world is going to fully decentralize, uh, necessarily, but I mean, there are a couple basic principles that, that you can look at. And, and that is that capital tends to flow from more restrictive regimes to more open regimes. And I don't, when I say regime, I don't just mean government. I mean, you know, any kind of, any kind of a setting where capital is more free, uh, to innovate and produce. Uh, so, um, to use a, you know, maybe a provocative example, and I'm certainly not saying again that I know what will happen, but just hypothetically, uh, knowing that El Salvador has made Bitcoin legal tender uh, along with the dollar, right? They don't have their own currency. They've been on the dollar since, uh, I think, uh, 1999, maybe. I'm not sure exactly when, but just uh, this year, they declared that Bitcoin is also legal tender in El Salvador. If that experiment works, and the average Salvadoran is wealthier than the average American, you can bet that there would be the motivation for some radical change uh, in America, for example. And I think that it really is just letting this play out uh, rather than trying to force it to happen. Okay. Uh, Paul, um, I want to get your thoughts on the gatekeeper thing, but I want to add something to that do you think that we need some sort of like a killer app or some some shift or some occurrence in our culture that's going to really drive the move to decentralization well i guess in short answer no because i'm taking this conversation as an example i'm thinking of decentralization extremely broad so it's possible that in the crypto space, if we're talking specifically about uh, finance or we're talking about a currency, you could argue, yes, we need a killer app. But if I think about more broadly about the implication of decentralization, if we think about energy consumption, we think about personalization of fashion culture, we think about finance, there's different factors or there's there's different variables that are going to play into how that adoption occurs. But one overarching theme that comes to mind is just the competition and the benefit from achieving superiority over who you're competing with. So what does that mean? Well, El Salvador adopting Bitcoin as legal tender, then they decide to look into mining Bitcoin from their thermal uh, energy deposits, so geothermal activity that they have. And what most people who aren't really aware is that mining 
any energy off of geothermal is actually very difficult uh, depending on, on where it is. So you definitely have that activity, that energy uh, production happening in different parts of the world, but it's not always easy to get to. And there can be other challenges with distributing the energy once it's made. Well, here you, you're able to put some miners, uh, Bitcoin miners up where the energy is, right? So actually travel to it. Uh, there is some engineering to get it to work right. And then you're able to actually mine the the Bitcoin. And now you've, you've harnessed value out of geothermal that you don't really have the ability to harness otherwise without significant capital outlays. Then you get to take that and you can reinvest it. So El Salvador starts to do this. And that's, let's say it ends up working out well for them. And you're a country that's saying, well, we don't want to do anything with, with Bitcoin, but we also have geothermal activity. And we also have areas where we'd like to invest. And we also don't have other types of energy deposits that we can harvest. So are we going to not follow El Salvador and start to mine using this kind of technology to be able to invest uh, and then lose traction relative to El Salvador? Or are we going to then start to invest in those areas? So there's, there's, it's not necessarily competing head on, but you're seeing what others are doing and you're seeing how they're, how they're running this race of life and asking yourself, do we really not want to do that? Maybe there's a principal reason because you say it's it's bad for the environment, even though it's geothermal energy that's that's there already. So I see those factors, and I think those are going to play a larger, um, a large. They're going to be a larger factor in how decentralization uh, decentralization occurs. There's certainly going to be pushback from legacy environments because it's not like other types of technology shifts where uh, in some cases, I suppose you could look at the solar power example and say, well, big oil doesn't like the solar power because you're, you're no longer consuming and using them. Uh, that, that is true. So maybe this is a counterpoint. But it, it, when we're talking about specifically to crypto, we're talking about a wholesale change on the system. It's not just a, you know, what Robinhood's trying to do or what Cabbage did uh, 10 years ago or some of the micro loan finance companies were doing 10 years ago. Yeah, they were kind of bolt-ons to the existing system with some innovation. This is saying, no, this is a brand new system. And with a brand new system, you can just imagine how much resistance there is to any time we try to achieve that. I mean, there's just, I, I don't know what the corollaries are, the examples, but, you know, just running a thought experiment, what if we said we were going to replace every single road system with an air system? Because we now have the capability for everyone to have their own little airplane. You know, just the idea would make people uh, go crazy. It's 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 unsafe, or you know, it's it makes them feel uncomfortable. So I expect that resistance. And as Jeremy pointed out, there's there's good reasons for that. I mean, this is how I how I butter my bread. Why am I going to allow something that that is unknown, potentially harmful, to come in when I have the capability to to slow its progress? from a regulatory perspective. And it's regulatory capture 101. I mean, you, you're going to use those tools at your disposal to push back. I agree that as they learn how to make money from it, they will, they will, they will not push as hard. Um, but it's, it's going to take some time. A killer app could help. You, we could also push back on the statement, like, is, is it happening fast enough? Crypto specifically is a global phenomenon. It's, it's not like Facebook or any other type of app, which had to build up in, um, I mean, Bitcoin is Bitcoin in every single country around the world. Ethereum is Ethereum in every single country around the world. They do have different preferences in the parts of the world where maybe there's more consumption, like in Korea, where they're buying a lot of Solana or some other type of crypto. But that's, I mean, it's, it's global. 
And in 10 plus years, we've gone from zero, a market worth nothing to over $2 trillion. What can we do in the next 10 years? Perhaps we're thinking of this wrong way. And it's, it's actually moving at a, at a clip that we can't even really fathom. We just haven't realized it yet. Awesome. All right. Well, we're over an hour and 50, almost an hour and 20 minutes in now. So let's close it out here. We'll go around the horn real quick and get everyone's closing thoughts. Uh, so Jeremy, any, any last things you want to get out there? I, I think just, just the final, final comments are that, uh, you know, and again, I, I relate this to, to cryptos at the moment. And I just, uh, I, I don't want there to be a fear of, of this decentralization. I want people to appreciate that it's a journey that we're all on right now and that it's a global 24 by 7, 365 journey. It's not banking hours. It's not business hours. It's literally 24 by 7, 365 global activity that's going on. And my last comment is that I think the real driver, the real mass adoption is going to come from NFTs. Okay. Paul? Ooh, uh, you made such good points about don't be fearful. Uh, just em- embrace this new world that's coming. I, I'll, I'll just tack on to that, that there's so much power to address the challenges that we see today from political discord to questions about how do we have, how do we unleash more energy and do less damage to the environment to how do we operate with um, other nation states that have different objectives than us, that this can help us address in a very, very productive way. So I wouldn't dismiss it at all when someone says Bitcoin solves that. That's a meme that's really meant to say decentralization solves that. And spend some time getting to know it, look into it, and figure out how you can contribute to making it a a better solution because it is such a powerful tool. Excellent. And Myron, we'll give you the closing thoughts. All right. Well, I agree with what uh, what Paul and Jeremy both said, and I'll, I'll just add to it that if the thesis is correct and the decentralized uh, the decentralizing trend continues, it isn't something to be afraid of. Uh, although there will be disruption, but innovation happens when capital and ideas flow to people who are thinking outside the box, and you know around. You know, all of humanity, time preferences and risk preferences are not equally spread across all people. And creativity and innovation uh, are not equally spread across all people. So the future of humanity is brightest when capital and ideas are able to flow to the people with the right risk preference, time preference, uh, creativity and innovation. And so this decentralizing trend, I think, could allow for great innovation beyond all of the you know radical visions that, that we've tried to imagine here. Excellent. That was a great way to close this thing out. So for Paul, Jeremy, Myron, this is Scott. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Cheers.